Today's reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 16. Verse 11. From Troas we put out to sea, and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who were gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we, didn't, we don't record the announcements, so Kai will never know. And <laughs> she put him on blast. <laughs> Welcome, glad you're here. Uh, my name is Matthew. I serve as the pastor here at Christ City Church. Um, Really, I'm delighted that you're here uh, with us this morning. Um, before we get into the message, um, I want us as a, a church just to spend a moment in prayer for our city. Um, last week uh, on Tuesday, just two blocks from where we are now, there was a shooting near the Rosedale Recreation Center. I mean, as far as we know, that the, the shooting wasn't fatal, uh, but there was one man who sustained uh, some injuries. And so since the shooting, uh, the staff and the elders and the prayer team have been praying for the Rosedale neighborhood specifically, but also for uh, the city more broadly. Um, some of you may know that um, in the city, overall crime uh, is down, but uh, violent crime and namely homicides are drastically up in our city. Um, at this point uh, in the year, uh, in 2017, D.C. had 57 homicides. So far in 2018, we have had 82. That's a 44% increase um, over last year. And so this is what I want us to do. I want us to pray as a church here before we get going. I want us to pray for the peace of our city. I want us to pray for an end to gun violence in our city. I want us to pray for the families of the 82 who have lost their lives. And I want us to pray for those who took the lives of the 82 for their families as well. I want us to pray for God's peace. I want us to pray for God's presence, for God's restoration in the lives of all of those who have been rocked by violence this year, victims and perpetrators. And so, um, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. Uh, and for the introverts in the room, I just want you to know I'm going to ask you to turn to your neighbor, which may mean a stranger, so sort of prepare, <laughs> prepare for that. Um, but so I want us to pray, but, and I want you to continue to pray this week, but I want you to do something else also. And here's what I want you to do. Uh, I want you to go to Rosedale. I want you to go to the pool. I want you to go swimming. Slide down the slide. Jump in the splash park. If, you're, you know, if it's not, you know, don't knock kids over or whatever, but go do what you do. And when you go there, what I want you to do is I want you to get to know another family that's there. I want you to talk to somebody, not just those that you go with. Get to know the family, get to know their names and the names of their children. And while you're there, I want you to pray over them. Pray out loud if you feel comfortable or pray in quiet. It doesn't matter. But begin the process of weaving together the communal and neighbor fabric that neighborhood violence will fray. So I want you to talk to your neighbors. If you're like, I don't know how to swim, that's fine. Then, but you got neighbors. Talk to your neighbors. Walk around your neighborhood and pray. Prayer walk, 
prayer swim, prayer porch sit, porch sit. I didn't say that very well. Let me talk to somebody. Be a chaplain to your neighbors. Look out for one another. Look to be a peacemaker and cry out to the Prince of Peace. So here's what I want us to do. It's going to take a couple of minutes, and I just want you to turn to somebody around you, and I just want you to pray. I want you to pray for Rosedale. We've checked in with the administration here, and we've visited with uh, the director at the Rosedale Rec Center, and we've talked to our ANC chair. They, they know that our church is praying for them and that everyone is okay, but I want us to pray right now. So just turn to your neighbors for a minute. I'm going to pray, and then I'll, call us, I'll close us out here in just a bit. So go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, you hear the prayers of uh, your children. Father, pray that you would receive them in your high place. In spirit, that you would move, God. We lift up those that um, have been affected by violence in our city, God. We pray for comfort for their families who are experiencing loss. God, we also pray for the families of those who have been wrecked by violence because their family member was the perpetrator. God, we pray that the story doesn't end this way. We pray that you would intervene, God. God, we pray that you would, that you would dampen the, 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 um, the anger and the frustration that can, uh, that can show up, particularly in the summertime, God. Lord, we pray for your peace to intervene. God, we pray for the well-being of uh, those that uh, create spaces for uh, young people to come and find positive outlets. God, we pray for the Rosedale Recreation Center. We pray for the library that's there. We pray for the pool that's there. The place is going to be filled in just an hour or so from now, God. And we pray for your peace, just a blanket of protection over that place and, and, and a reweaving of neighbor and neighborhood and neighborliness that, can be, that has been, been ruptured here. God, we pray for our entire city. We pray that those that, um, that are leading our city, God, and pray that um, you, you would give all of us creative imagination about what it would mean for the city to be a place where violence doesn't happen anymore. God, we pray that you would embody in your people and in our city what it means to serve the Prince of Peace. So God, we pray for your intervention. And we lift our city up to you. And we're grateful to call it home. May we pray that your kingdom would come in D.C. as it is in heaven, in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thanks for doing that. Uh, so um, I'll tell you this story. So in my family, there's this kind of interesting phenomenon that happens, that has happened, where nearly no one in my family goes by their first name. I'm the only, like, as I think about my family, I'm like the only person that goes by their first name. My name is Matthew Wayne Watson. I go by Matthew. Some folks just call me Watson. So now that I'm in this story, I just realized some of you call me by my last name. This story may not go well. But anyway, here's the deal. Many, so many of my family members, they don't go by their names. So just a sampling, and this is just a sampling. I could go on. But for example, my mom is Gloria Dion. She goes by Dion. My dad is Howard Wayne. He goes by Wayne. My brother is Howard Lucas. He goes by Luke. Uh, my grandfather, Charles Fred, he goes by? Wrong. He goes by Odie. <laughs> my other grandfather, he was Howard Clad. He goes by? Speedy. <laughs> because that makes sense. 
I have uh, my grandmother on my mom's side. Um, her name is Kay, and I'm sworn to secrecy to not tell you what her first name is because she absolutely hates it, so I won't tell you that, but I'll tell you that she doesn't go by her first name. And then my other grandmother, my, my granny on my dad's side, uh, she was Ruby Loretha, and she chose to go by Loretha. That's it. But my granny, Ruby Loretha, she was a great woman. She passed away many years ago and she loved Jesus and she prayed for me constantly. And she would take me to vacation Bible school at the church in the neighborhood. Vacation Bible school is like a day camp uh, where the church in our neighborhood, they hosted it each summer. And she encouraged me in like everything I did. She would just say that was that was great. And she was just very effusive with, with compliments and just, she was just such a, a, a stalwart in my life and in my family. Um, one of the things that she did was she gave me my, my very first Bible uh, 30 years ago, this one. She gave it to me. Uh, it's, she gave me this. It was New King James Version. Um, she was a King James uh, Version lady herself, but I guess she felt like, well, you know, maybe all the 12-year-olds in 1988 are reading the New King James, <laughs> so that's what I'll, that's what I'll get. Matthew, um, and uh, there was a, there's an inscription on the inside of it where she, where she wrote uh, on the cover a variation of the passage from Luke 3. And um, in, the, in the passage, Jesus is uh, being baptized and following his baptism, God says, uh, this is my beloved son in whom I'm very well pleased. Granny wrote down the passage, but she put grandson instead of son. Uh, I don't think the Lord minded much, uh, but that's what it says. Um, and so throughout my life, Granny was a support for me. She was a champion for me. She was a defender for me. She was a provider for me during really hard times. And she was what is referred to in the Bible in the original Hebrew language. She was an etzer for me. She was a support. She was a defender. She was a champion. At the end of May, we started this sermon series that we're concluding today where we sought to explore different stories of women in the Bible. Um, we called the series Etzer, which is the word, the, the name that is used to describe Eve in the book of Genesis and her relation to Adam. Um, Eve is called an Etzer Konegdo, a word that means a suitable helper. And we've pointed out that the word Etzer is often uh, used, most often used in the Bible to describe God, God as an Etzer to his people. And we've pointed out that um, God as, a, as an Etzer in our times of trouble or need or desperation, that God is a helper who rescues us from the enemy, who secures our salvation, who delivers us from the enemy. Like he, ever and always, the, the repetition in the word etzer is used for God as one who defends. And it's through this lens, this lens of, of etzer, this lens of women who reflect the strong help that comes from God. It's through this lens that we've sought to consider the different stories and different women in the Old and the New Testament. We've walked through uh, uh, Eve and Rizpah, Hagar, Anna, Mary, the Syrophoenician woman, Deborah. And today we're going to end by looking at Lydia, one of my favorite characters in the New Testament. And as we look at Lydia's story, the guiding questions are these. In what ways is Lydia an etzer for us? In what ways is she a, a helper or a defender or a champion? And then as we look at the ways that Lydia was an etzer, then how does that inform our faith story? How does Lydia's life inform ours? So uh, what I want to begin first with is just beginning uh, to consider a bit of Lydia's uh, background. Who is she? One of the first things that we discover about Lydia is that she's wealthy. She's a wealthy woman. Now, the text doesn't just come out and say, here's Lydia. She was rich. 
Uh, but what it does say is it gives indication of her economic standing. Let's look back again, Acts 16, verse 14. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God, and the Lord opened her heart to Paul's message, and when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited, them, she invited us to, to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. I just love it, like the frankness. She, was, she just convinced us, so we went. Um, there are two points that stand out here in this verse that give us clues into Lydia's social standing. First is she is a dealer in purple cloth. Now, and then the second is that she gives the invitation to stay at her house. Let me deal with these two things one at a time. First, the purple cloth. Lydia was a dealer in um, fabrics that had been dyed uh, with, uh, with a purple tint. Now, the purple dye, it came from certain kinds of shellfish that were really rare and quite expensive to secure. And so consequently, any of the textiles that were dyed with this purple were likewise an, a sign of expense and luxury and wealth. And so if somebody had a purple robe or the trim of their clothes were in purple or if they had furniture that was covered uh, with a purple covering, then it was an indication that they uh, were wealthy and that they were prestigious. And so when, when Luke, the author of Acts, when he indicates that she's a dealer of purple fabrics, he's cluing us into the fact that Lydia was wealthy. The second clue to Lydia's wealth is how the book of Acts refers to her house and her household. In verse 15, it says that she and the members of her household were baptized. And then later, Lydia implores Paul and Silas to stay with her at her house. Now, the possessive language here is used to describe not only the house, the physical dwelling, but also those who live there as members of her household. It points to Lydia being the head of the household. It means that she had agency, that she had control, that she had possession of what was going on there. And this uh, indicates that Lydia wasn't married, either she was a widow or that she was divorced. But in either case, rather than her singleness leading to economic vulnerability and destitution, which was often the case in the day, Lydia's station was secure. That she was a woman of means. That she was a woman of stature and security. She was a wealthy businesswoman who was head of her own estate. So Lydia is a woman of means. In this regard, Lydia is actually a bit different from some of the women that we've explored in this series. Lydia is a woman who has tremendous agency over her life. Though she's still in a very patriarchal society, she has power and privilege. However, even though Lydia was a woman of wealth, she didn't isolate herself in her wealth. But she also occupied the margins. Here's what I mean. Acts indicates that Lydia was from the city of Thyatira, and all signs point that Lydia was of Greek background meaning she didn't grow up in the Jewish tradition culturally or religiously. But she was now living in the city of Philippi, which was a Roman colony. Philippi was actually a city that was used by Rome where they would allow Roman soldiers who retired, the officers, to actually retire in Philippi. It was like a prestigious retirement community in the Roman world. And it was a city of, of luxury and cos cosmopolitan approaches. And so here you have a wealthy Greek background woman living in a relatively prestigious Roman city, and yet Paul and Silas find her at a Jewish prayer meeting. Verse 12, from there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony in the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate and to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. And we sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. That's where they find Lydia. She's outside the gate, 
by the river. She's not surrounded by the wealthy and privileged. She's with the people praying to a God that she's presumably only recently met. And she's intertwining her life with the lives of those who are under occupation and oppression. And the reason they are meeting outside the gate is because Philippi didn't have a synagogue. That's why Acts says that Paul and Silas went to the river where they expected to find a place of prayer. If you remember from Paul's other journeys, whenever he goes to a new city, most often he goes to a synagogue, but Philippi didn't have one. And so uh, what they do is they go down to the river, uh, and uh, by the way, it's by the river because they would uh, have ceremonial washings that would be incorporated into their Jewish prayers. And so Lydia, though she's different from the other women, she's praying. She's different culturally. She's different in terms of upbringing, and though she has status, and though she has power, and she has esteem as the world sees it, she's drawn to the faith of these marginalized people, and she aims to intertwine her life with the lives of those that are different from her, because she senses that there's truth in their faith, and she wants to be close to the Lord. And so Lydia is not just a woman of means, but she's also a woman on the margins, Lydia is a woman of wealth. She is also a woman who positions herself on the, on the outskirts of society. She refuses to allow her wealth and her privilege to isolate or insulate her from those that are forced to gather outside the city gates. In this way, Lydia paves the way for other generations of Christians who would follow her example of stewarding their wealth or their status or their privilege in such a way as to care for the poor and to further the good news. Many of the early church fathers in our own church tradition, Origen, Tertullian, were considered men of education and privilege. Even many of the saints of the church that we know today, that um, we think, when we think of them, we think of their care for the poor, they themselves grew up in wealth and opportunity. St. Francis of Assisi, along with Claire of Assisi, they were both born into wealthy families. St. Benedict's family were aristocrats. However, embedded in each of their stories is a turn wherein they seek to intertwine their lives, weave their lives into the lives of those who are poor and marginalized and living on the edges of society. They don't love at a distance. They don't care at arm's length. Rather, they see that their future is bound up in the lives of those that are on the margins. And so they go to that place. Last thing uh, I'll say about Lydia, and it could be more for sure, is that Lydia is a worshiper, verse 14. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. This reference to Lydia in verse 14 is a statement of her faith and of her conversion. Oftentimes when the Bible uh, refers to um, someone who is, not, who is of a non-Jewish background, but who has converted to Judaism, the Bible refers to them as, uh, as uh, one who worships God or one who fears God. It's the way that the Bible talks about those who have converted to the Jewish faith. And all the, pa the passage doesn't come right out and say that Lydia was a Gentile, and though it doesn't say, and then she converted to Judaism, it's indicating by naming her hometown of Thyatira, a Greek city, and the way that they use her name in the original language. And then this title of a one who worships God, we're to understand that Lydia has come to believe in the God of the Hebrews. But this isn't, um, this isn't only that she is a convert, but she is one who is actively and purposefully and continually seeking after God. 
She begun to follow the ways of God, and yet she's done so without a proper synagogue, and that's why she's down at the river with the others outside the gate. She's done so not in a thoroughly Jewish city like Jerusalem, which would have been the center of religious life and activity for the Jewish people, but she's managed to uncover a faith in the thoroughly Roman city of Philippi. She's a, she's a worshiper of God, and when everything was sort of stacked against her circumstances, she still said, no, I want to cry out to the God that is awakening me. She is a woman of means. She is on the margin and she is one who worships the Lord. And at some point in her life, she witnessed the difference that faith in God, that life in God. She witnessed the difference that grace can make. And she was drawn to that. At risk, certainly to her status, her lifestyle, at risk of relationships that she may have had. Perhaps she didn't have all the answers because we never have all of the answers when we come to faith. But there was substance to the faith and there was a stirring in her soul that prompted her to reach out to the God that she understood was pursuing her. And so Lydia's response was to take steps towards God, to pursue the one who was pursuing her. And those steps, the initially of exploration, they found themselves flourishing to the point where she numbers among those who worship God. And now she finds a community of prayer and a posture of worship. And that's where Paul and Silas find this very cosmopolitan woman. Not trusting in herself or in her wealth, but surrounded with others whose hearts were stirred by the work and wooing and beauty of God. So Lydia is a, means, is a woman of means, and she aligns herself on the margins of the community, and she is a worshiper of God, and that's part of who she is. But what does she do? So jumping back into the story, Paul and Silas, they arrive at a prayer meeting, and Paul sits down among them. He sits down assuming the posture of, of a rabbi, which would have been the posture that rabbis uh, preached and teached from. And then he begins to share with the women, Lydia included, about Jesus and how Jesus is the one that they'd all long for, about how he was the rescuer. And the Bible says, um, verses 14 and 15 again, um, jumping into 14, she was a worshiper of God and the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Verse 15, and when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. Lydia does two things at this point. She opens her heart and she opens her home. Lydia opens her heart, or better said, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Lydia listened to the Spirit's prompting. She was tender to the ways that God had been speaking, and now she was listening with clarification. Paul, who was providing a clarification to those deep echoes that had been reverberating in her soul for years. And she opened her heart. She listened to the Holy Spirit who was wooing her into relationship, into deepening relationship with God. She listened, and she was in a posture to listen. The thing is, every, every Sunday before we, we come into this place, in this space, in this time, one of the consistent prayers that I pray, and that the worship leaders pray, and that the prayer team prays, is that we would listen. Not to me or to the band or to anything that we would say, but that we would listen to the Lord. And that when we hear, that the Spirit would open our hearts to the things that God would say to us. 
that we would just listen well. Lydia opens her heart, but she also opens her home. Luke writes in Acts 16, uh, verse 15, when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. Um, she, she sort of puts pressure on them, actually, when she says, um, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. This is actually kind of a, kind of a little manipulation, really, is what's going on here. Um, Lydia opening her home to this traveling band of missionaries, it would have been culturally incredibly rude uh, for them to say, ah, we're okay, like, we're going to keep moving. So she's like, ah, look, if we're really family, then you've got to stay here. And so they were like, guess we're staying at your place. And so, they, so that's what happens. <laughs> Paul, Silas, and Luke, who is presumably with them also, they stay with Lydia and her family. And then what happens while they're staying there is a little bit bonkers, actually. It's a theological term. Um, Lydia and her family begin following Jesus, and when Paul and the others begin teaching the good news about Jesus, something subtle yet massive begins to happen in her house in Philippi. Lydia's house becomes the birthplace of the Philippian church. This well-to-do Gentile convert to Judaism, now follower of Jesus, becomes the protector, the pathway provider, and the promoter of the church in Philippi. Next month, um, we are going to celebrate five years as a church, as a worshiping community. Um, the first four, we were a parish of the district church, and then now we're approaching our one-year anniversary as Christ City Church. And so, by the way, you won't want to miss uh, next month's community lunch. Happy birthday to us. Um, it's going to be awesome. Um, and it's right for us to celebrate these amazing milestones and to remember how God has used us and what he's done in us. Five years, it's, it's definitely a reason to celebrate. Um, but our history is actually even older than that. For before the launching of Christ City, before we ever met at Minor, there were those that opened their heart to Christ and opened their home to the church. Some of you that are here now, you were there then. You were at 1840 Bay Street when the home was opened and the multiplying message of God was dropped in your midst and what was thought about just as an idea or what was sensed in the heart or in the gut maybe began to take form. And the next thing you knew, there was a new church in Northeast Washington, D.C. But it began when people opened their hearts and opened their homes to what the Spirit of God wanted to do in them and through them. And in this way, we stand on the shoulders of Lydia. Lydia is an etzer for the church, for our church. Remember that we've said uh, an etzer, it's one who helps, who champions, who tends, who cares for, who watches out for another. Etzers were those who pointed to the ultimate etzer, God himself who saves. And so Lydia is a champion. She's a caretaker. She's a watcher-outer for the church. And because of Lydia's leadership and generosity and sensitivity to the spirit, the church flourishes in this unexpected way. So the disciples are staying with Lydia. They're staying there for several days. And during their stay in Philippi, a series of really crazy events happens. Here's what happens. First, they run into a demon-possessed girl. Christ City has had a lot of things happen in five years. That hadn't been one that's not a part of our story. Not yet. But, you know, whatever. We're ready. 
there was a girl who was possessed by an evil spirit, and this, the spirit gives her the ability to foretell the future. And so this ability is seized upon by her owners to use her for economic exploitation. Verse 16, once we were going to the place of prayer, so they're returning back to the place by the river to, to pray, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. Verse 17, she followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. Now, Paul and Silas, they're staying at Lydia's, and now they're still going to the place of prayer. They're going back and forth to the river, and they're still meeting with women and others who are gathered there. And this girl, she shows up, and she's shouting at them all the time. She's shouting, these men are servants. Now, um, I've been shouted at before, but I've never, I, I mean, not this. Um, when Lisa and I, um, Lisa and I were living in Nigeria for a season, and um, we lived in this apartment building, and I would have to walk like six blocks from the apartment building to the clinic uh, where we were working at. And um, so uh, every day I walk past a school that's filled with like 150 kids. And um, I learned, a, uh, they helped me learn the language. One of the words that I learned in Hausa was oibo, which means white man. And so every day when I would walk by the school, 200 kids would rush out, they would cling to the fence, they would look at me and shout, oibo, oibo. I'm like, yes, white man. <laughs> Just, just walking to the clinic. I would work. I would walk back. 200 kids. Oibo, oibo, white man. Now, sometimes I'm like, all right, I don't, this, how long is this going to go on? Like, it's every day, like twice a day. If I come home for lunch, then it's four times a day. So sometimes, like, I'm walking back, and I'm like, that's right. You know, like, I'm giving them one of those. I'm like, look at me. Yes, handsome, as a matter of fact. Like, this is back and forth, back and forth by, you know, one week, two weeks, three weeks, I'm, the months are going by and I'm like, every day, God, these kids, like, and I'm thinking, well, maybe I can take another way that would take me twice as long. I'm like, man, I'm not letting these kids, like, bully me into not walking the short way down to the clinic. So every day I'm walking by, kids are there, the kids are there. Finally, one day, I just, I can't take it and I just, I'm just like, stop shouting at me. That didn't happen, I didn't say that. <laughs> I thought it every single day that I walked by though. I knew I couldn't do that because I was a missionary in a foreign land and that would be inappropriate for missionaries to do. But apparently it wasn't inappropriate for Paul to do. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, verse 18, finally Paul, I love Luke writing this down. Paul became so annoyed. <laughs> and he turned around and he said to them, like what else did he say? Like for crying out loud, demon, will you stop with this already? Like I don't know. Like but what happens is Paul frees her from the spirit. But that means that the slave owners, they have lost their revenue now. And rather than celebrating the freedom of a child, they are furious over the economic impact. So they turn to the authorities. Verse 19, when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. Paul and Silas are arrested. They're beaten by the Roman soldiers, and then they're beaten by a Philippian mob, and they're thrown into prison for getting a girl free from bondage. And while in prison, they're in the middle of the night, after what certainly would have been one of the most traumatic days of their lives, Paul and Silas 
in the middle of the night, begin singing hymns and saying prayers. And the soldiers and the other prisoners heard them. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. There is power in witness of faith in the darkest places. I don't want pain. I don't want trauma. I don't want darkness. I don't want it and I don't want it for you. But when it comes to me, I don't want to lose my song. I want to be able to sing. I want to be able to pray. And I want to be able to testify that God is bigger than Rome and he's bigger than mobs and he's bigger than violence and he's bigger than pain and he's bigger than the night. And while the disciples were praying in jail, miraculously, there was an earthquake that shook so violently it tore the doors off the jail. Now, I can just imagine poor Paul and Silas are like, my God, what a day, right? Like, first this girl is shouting, and then, you know, maybe I was a little annoyed. Maybe I shouldn't have said it so forcefully. Maybe I should have quietly cast out the demon, but I didn't do that. These guys, they came, they collect us, they beat us. We get beaten twice. They throw us in jail. We're trying to be good Christians, followers of Jesus. We're singing, and then an earthquake, like even the planet is revolting against us. Can we catch a break here? And then the doors open up. And because the doors are shaken open, presumably all of the inmates that are in the jail would run away. And after a Roman guard loses inmates, then the penalty is death. And so the Roman guard, seeing the doors that are open, the guard prepares to take his own life. Verse 29. He's about to kill himself. And then in verse 29, the jailer calls for lights and he rushed in. And fell trembling before Paul and Silas, who didn't run away. They said, we're still here. And he brought them out. And because of their faithfulness, because of their display of care for him, the jailer says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Because of the disciples' lives and their testimony, the jailer and his family begin following Jesus. They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. You and your whole household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the jailer's house. And that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. And then he and all of his household were baptized. And the jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. And he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole house. You see, what happened to the jailer is the same pattern that we see in Lydia. He opens his heart to the Lord, and then he opens his home. In this turn of events that led to Paul and Silas uh, being freed from prison after this, and they return to Lydia's, and they continue in their ministry. Verse 40, after Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them, and then they left. All of this traces back to Lydia. Because of Lydia's work, her generosity, and her discipleship, what emerges was a diverse church in this cosmopolitan city. You see this multi-class, multi-ethnic church that uh, began to open their hearts and they opened their homes to the move of the Holy Spirit. You have wealthy businesswomen. You have uh, Roman guards that are just like middle-class guys. You have freed slaves that represent the poor and the destitute. Everyone is now welcome in this Philippian church. 
because a woman listened to the Lord and opened her home. Lydia's work doesn't stop with her or her house either. We fast forward to a letter that Paul writes to the church that's established in Philippi. And there's a letter to the Philippians. The, the letter that he writes to the church in Philippi, it's actually called the letter of joy. Um, Paul would write to a lot of different churches, and um, some of them he wrote angry letters to and are like, what's wrong with you guys? You're not believing the gospel. I taught you this already. Others, it's sort of a mixed bag. He's happy for some of them, but he's also really frustrated with them. For the Philippian church, he only has great and glorious things to say to them. It's just, it's called the letter of joy. He begins in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. You can hear already just knowing he's writing to the church that was established in the city where he was arrested and beaten and earthquakes happened and he yelled at little girls. But we can see that the church is beginning to grow and to mature, that they've got overseers and deacons, that they're developing leaders from within them, that others, maybe even that jailer and maybe even the freed girl has now grown up in the faith and they've taken on leadership roles within the church. And now Paul, years later, is writing back to them. And he says in verse 3, Knowing the story of what took place in Philippi, hear this. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all of my prayers for you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day, the first day that we met by the river. Do you remember it? The first day that we met in a living room. Do you remember it? Until now being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you, who began that work by the river, who began that work on the streets when we were being yelled at and being beaten, who began that work in the prison when we were being freed and let out by the work of the Spirit, he who began that work will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That good work that was begun in Philippi, it continued and it's continuing in us even now. We stand on the shoulders of our foremother Lydia, who was an etzer to the church in Philippi and is an etzer to us now. May we continue to be a people that call others to open their hearts to Christ and open their homes to the move of the Spirit. And in that way, Leah's invitation to us is for us to join her in being etchers for the church as well. For God's glory and for the good of the world and the good of our city. Let me pray for us. Lord, you, um, you, you use all kinds, Lord. You use those that have been in, in bondage and are now freed. You use those that have come out of lowly circumstances. 
use those that, of us that just have that come out of blue-collar families, just day-laboring families, God. And you use others that have means and wealth so that people can come to know that there is a God who loves and pursues, who saves and who rescues. And those that he rescues, he then, he then puts to work of sharing this good news. Lord, I pray that, that even this morning, Lord, in whatever ways we need to, to open more fully our hearts to you, that we would follow in the, in the tram line of Lydia and of the jailer and others, and that we would just listen to the Lord. We would listen to the things that you may want to say to us, areas of our lives that you want to, to deliver us from, habits or bondages that you want to free us from, wounds that you want to be a balm for, God. I pray that we would open our hearts and hear you speaking to us and reminding us who we are in you. God, for others of us, you, you, you want us to take another step of, of being open, of opening our, our homes, which is to say to open our lives to others, to gather together, to hear about this good news and this story of the God who rescues. So Spirit, in whatever ways that you're speaking and that you're turning in us, God, I pray that we would hear and that we would respond. That we would respond in that immediate and obedient and confident way that we see Lydia responding. That we would even be a bit cavalier in our response and say, Lord, if you use anybody, then use me. I'm game. And God, that we would be amazed at the ways that you'd work in us and through us. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.